Hi, welcome to the Quipster Film Review Podcast. My name is Vince Leo. I'm the author of the film review website, Quipster.net. I invite you to check out over 4,000 of my written reviews. You can read there anytime. Quipster.net is where to go. Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. I don't tell you often enough, but I also have all of these reviews that you're hearing on this podcast in written form for those people who prefer to go back and read, or you can even make a comment under the reviews. You can find all of that at Quipster.net. Don't forget, I also have another podcast that covers films of the 1980s, specifically. A lot of fun material there to go through, so I hope you check it out. It's called Around the World in 80s Movies. Search for it wherever you're listening to this right now, and you'll find it. And kind of in the nostalgia vein there, it's not set in the 1980s, it's actually set in the 1990s. The film I'm going to be reviewing today, it is Captain Marvel. I think it's the 21st in the MCU series so far. Like the others, it's a PG-13 rated film. It does have science fiction violence and action and brief suggestive language. The runtime is two hours and four minutes. Brie Larson plays the titular Captain Marvel, or Marvel, I think is the correct pronunciation. You might hear me say Marvel. I'm so used to saying it that way. Samuel L. Jackson, Jude Law, Annette Bening, Ben Mendelsohn, Lashana Lynch, and Clark Gregg, returning here, uh, Rune Tempty, are in the film. A few other cameo appearances as well. The director is Anna Bowden and Ryan Fleck. They also contribute to the screenplay along with Geneva robertson Dwarrett. Now, if you've heard of Ryan Fleck and Anna Bowden, you've probably been watching a lot of indie dramas because that's what they cut their teeth doing in films. Half Nelson, Mississippi Grind are among the favorite films for those people who catch those uh, independent films that they've done in the past. Nothing that most people have heard of, but I do recommend their movies. Generally speaking, they're taking the reins here. This is their first blockbuster film. Marvel had toyed with other directors. They were all female. Nikki Caro, Jennifer Kent. There were quite a few others that they were looking at. But they ended up settling on at least one out of two of the directors being female, Anna Bowden. Uh, They're handling here the Marvel Cinematic Universe's long overdue first female-led film in their run with Captain Marvel. Now, technically, they have had females share the spotlight, at least one. Uh, The closest thing I think they came was uh, co-lead credit for Ant-Man and the Wasp before this, but this is the first one where a solo woman is the hero. As I mentioned earlier, this one's set mostly in the 1990s, and it serves as a prequel, I guess, to most of the other MCU films, maybe with the exception of... uh, Captain America First Avenger to a certain extent, and while it does serve as an origin story of sorts to the nature of Nick Fury in particular and how he came to realize that there were superpowered beings in the universe beyond Earth and also how he came to form the Avengers Initiative as a result, this entry mostly is a means to establish Captain Marvel as a formidable presence in this storyline, especially as she will become a prominent player in the next big Marvel crossover film, Avengers Endgame, which is coming out just a mere seven weeks after the initial release of Captain Marvel. As we start the film, Captain Marvel is not called that. It, she's actually called Veers. It's actually spelled V-E-R-S. At the beginning of this story, the name Captain Marvel, or Marvel if you prefer, is not used in the film despite the title, at least until you get to the very, very end of the film. Uh, she's an ultra-powerful warrior for this alien race called the Kree. Their capital is the planet Hala, and that's where the events take place right at the beginning of the film. She's part of an elite group of warriors called Star Force, and Star Force is doing battle with a fearsome, shape-shifting race from another planet called the Skrulls. 
The scrolls have the power to impersonate other living beings, although they have a notable limitation in terms of how deep their memories go. Veers is haunted by her own memories of a strange time and a strange place when she was a pilot in the United States Air Force. She ends up learning more about that when she ends up jettisoned on Earth in 1995. After this explosive skirmish and her high-powered suit catches the interest of law enforcement there, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., she meets initially skeptical Nick Fury, who is not the director at that time. It's just kind of a lower-level agent. Played by Samuel L. Jackson here, he's de-aged about 25 years throughout the film, thanks to the visual effects team here. Pretty convincing stuff there, generally speaking, although, you know, he doesn't necessarily look exactly like the Samuel L. Jackson that we knew from the mid-90s, like in Pulp Fiction and whatnot. And there she begins uh, this search for something called the Lightspeed Engine, something she's remembering in her memories, uh, something that both civilizations, the Kree and the Skrulls, want to get their hands on first. It is on Earth that she begins to put these pieces of her memory and former life there back together. She reunites with old friends who knew her in her days, uh, I guess six years prior, as Carol Danvers, visiting her old stomping grounds. She also begins to discover more about her mission, what is being fought for, and the nature of the vicious Kree Scroll War that she never knew about. Unfortunately, the Scrolls, led by someone named Talos, played by Ben Mendelsohn, they're in hot pursuit on a planet completely unaware and unprepared for the arrival of such high-powered beings. Way more to the story than that. Obviously, when you're the 21st film in a, <laughs> in a series, you're probably going to have a lot of other story threads that eventually will develop because this is a prequel of sorts. Captain Marvel explores more of the human side to Carol Danvers as well as her ultra-powerful abilities. She learns her true power as a hero, not only externally, but it comes from within, and she especially begins learning about her own vulnerabilities, her friendships, her place in the world, and her place in the universe. And despite this, there is an aloofness that we have toward the character, who really doesn't have more than one or two facets to her to hold on to, despite pretty good acting talent and charisma from Brie Larson. She tries to breathe some life into a fairly murkily defined role. And part of the reason why we still feel aloof is because, one, is she's a Cree, which has been obliquely incorporated into the Guardians of the Galaxy films before this, spotlighted mostly in the Ronan the Accuser character. Although there's not really enough for us to care yet of the implications of being a Cree or the Cree Skull War. Another part is that her character has amnesia and only later comes to realize that the strange dreams that she has about another life might actually be flashbacks. And yet even those character tidbits are really not enough to root us emotionally into her plight, at least not at this stage of the game. It is still nice to deal with her origin in a flashback in order to not dwell on a lot of details, but when the lack of background exposition begins to affect the ability for us to get invested into the emotional character beats, or to get really excited to see that character engage in battle, it becomes a liability to the enjoyment of the film that it doesn't quite overcome, despite a lot of razzle-dazzle to this film. Now, this entry takes full advantage of its mid-1990s setting. It allows for a whole jukebox of early 90s hits to play on the soundtrack, and it often ties in with the theme of the scene that they're presented over. Some might find that angle to be a bit too on the nose, but I do think that it works well in giving the film some needed energy, as well as some deeper resonance to those themes, for those scenes in particular. Nevertheless, 90s kids are still going to enjoy reminiscing about such things as blockbuster video or grunge music or old school computer and ancient 
by today's standards, communications technology, and many of the other aspects that defined the era of the early 1990s that have been receded into the memories of the mind and most viewers as deeply as Danvers has been going through. In a way, it works in a similar fashion to the Transformers spin-off prequel that came out just a few months prior, Bumblebee. And Bumblebee also had a backstory of warring alien factions, including shapeshifter powers, and eventually one of them goes to Earth and has enemies in pursuit and ends up befriending an Earthling, all with a healthy share of nostalgia. Bumblebee was set course in 1987 or so this one set you know eight years later both films have era specific pop tunes to try to color the atmosphere also interesting to note the similarities between the mcu's tesseract and the michael bay transformers films allspark both are cubes with universally powerful properties that everybody wants to get their hands on the film benefits from a solid troop of actors and the kind of solid visual effects work that we've grown accustomed to from Marvel Cinematic Universe films, especially once they've hit their stride financially. However, no amount of glorious computer-generated imagery or pop to nostalgia can make up for the fact that none of the battle sequences really have palpable stakes, at least not ones that are going to get you really energized. And that's primarily because we lack the ability to identify at those times with the hero and aren't particularly yet invested in the Kree-Scroll battle to care one way or another about who comes out victorious. A sense of the exotic is also missing from the film, as everyone from human to Kree to Scroll, they all speak English, all speak the same language, even amongst each other. The screenwriting gets kind of lazy in exposition because it really has to take shortcuts into explaining decades worth of mythos from the pages of Marvel Comics within the course of a two-hour movie, a movie that does double duty as an origin story of sorts to Nick Fury as well as eventually to the Avengers as a whole. Now, Captain Marvel is the first film to come out after the death of beloved Marvel Comics creator Stan Lee, to which the film pays homage by placing his visage very prominently to comprise all of the shots in the opening Marvel logo to kick off the film. Usually we see images of all of the Marvel characters, sometimes in print form, sometimes in their cinematic form, but all we get are Stan Lee and his cameos right at the beginning of the montage, and it's very touching. There's a thank you message right after that for all that he's contributed to the fandom, of course, and really comic books and really <laughs> cinema now altogether. It's not the last time you see Stan's face, though. He does have a requisite cameo that he appears Later on, he's actually filmed probably at least one. He's going to have a cameo in Avengers Endgame as well, so he was able to at least provide that. His cameo here is a pretty funny aside. It reminds you of what Stan Lee himself was likely doing during this time in the mid-1990s, 25 years before the release of this film. The homage montage with Stan Lee, I think, represents the most emotional moment of the movie for many Marvel fans. And it isn't even really technically part of this movie. It just happens to be the movie that came out first after his passing. So I don't know how much credit I could give to this film just because I got a little choked up watching that uh, montage. But anyway, as much as I would love to bestow glowing praise upon Captain Marvel for what it's trying to do, both narratively as well as thematically, I don't think it takes a long time before many viewers are going to come to the conclusion that I did, which is that it's just not going to get into the kind of solid and energetic groove of excitement that most MCU films eventually do hit. And as such, I do think that it's eventually going to go down as a lower tier Marvel entry. 
if I had to guess, it would be somewhere in the mix of the Thor and the Incredible Hulk and the Ant-Man films, which are generally considered lesser Marvel films. Although those entries, I will say, at least have the benefit of being filled with humor that does temper their lackluster stories. There is humor in Captain Marvel, but it definitely is absent at least most of the time as compared to other MCU films. Despite a bigger emphasis on characterization this time out, which is definitely appreciated, the titular character does continue to remain an enigma throughout, despite following her for two hours, and even then, she's not even a tenth as fun to watch and observe as watching the already established Marvel character of Nick Fury, who turns out to be, quite humorously, a major cat lover we come to learn in this film. He's fixated on a cat named Goose, which I assume is a Top Gun reference. That cat is called Chewie in the comic book form, but I think they wanted to avoid the uh, Star Wars reference that made sense probably when it was introduced in comics, maybe not as much now. That cat once belonged to Danvers' mentor and inventor of the light speed engine, Dr. Wendy Lawson. You know, when more people, when more viewers of Captain Marvel are walking out of the theater talking about how much they enjoyed this cute CG kitty or a Stanley cameo or even Samuel L. Jackson's performance more so than they say anything about the main character, I think there's definitely a problem with your superhero story's focus, at least in terms of where people found entertainment. So along those lines, I do think that it's unfortunate that there have not been more recent solo female superhero films to compare Captain Marvel to. I mean, there have been in the past, obviously Supergirl and Sheena and Catwoman and, you know, we've had them before, but the only one you can really compare it to in recent years, that one that really beat it to the punch, the DCEU's Wonder Woman, is the biggest, you know, basis for comparison now. And while Marvel has been able to best DC in most regards, at least cinematically and critically, DC easily best Marvel in their head-to-head competition for making a female-led superhero film that is entertaining and thoughtful and emotional and exciting. Wonder Woman is definitely the way to go. Captain Marvel, I think, ultimately emerges as a disappointment in that comparison. I don't think it's a bad film. I do think that this is a pretty decent film, but it's lackluster by comparison to the likes of not only Wonder Woman, but other recent Marvel efforts, including Black Panther, the first superhero flick to actually get a Best Picture nomination at the Academy Awards. Hard to live up to that, but still, you end up hoping it could be better than it ends up being. It really does coast by on its spectacle. There's a few good character performances here, especially from Samuel L. Jackson. And there's a modest amount of intrigue as to the nature of Carol Danvers and how she became a Kree warrior and how she got her powers. So at least there's that. If expectations are kept sufficiently low, I do think that it's passable entertainment. That's the most I can say, though, about this film. And given that it's also a means for Marvel to try to supercharge anticipation for Avengers Endgame the following month, in that regard, I do think it's a failure. I don't think that anybody's going to come out of Captain Marvel thinking that now they're even anticipating Avengers Endgame more than they had going into it. I'm sure there's some exceptions out there, but I don't think that most people are going to even care that much one way or another. Along those lines, I do have to mention here, if there is anything that's going to get people charged up for the sequel, there is a mid credit sequence. I do think that it's worth sticking around to see if you're at all anticipating Avengers Endgame. If you're an MCU fan, of course, you stick around through these credits. There is an end credit scene. I do think it's not nearly as critical. It does perhaps answer a question that may have lingered in the mind otherwise, but as far as the whereabouts of a particular object that comes into play in some of the other Marvel films. But all in all, I think there's enough here to recommend. 
you know, I haven't disliked any of the Marvel Cinematic Universe films, generally speaking. I think they're all recommendable films, especially for fans of the series. So I'm going to give it three stars out of four. Three stars on my scale means that I do recommend it for people who like this kind of movie. If you're a fan of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, primarily, I think you're going to get your money's worth from Captain Marvel. If you're somebody who's never really cared for these kinds of films or perhaps they lost you long ago, I don't think this is the one that's going to get you into its fold. This is definitely, as I mentioned, what I consider to be a lower tier Marvel movie. So that's the reason why I only give it three stars out of four. Thank you, everyone, for listening. I hope that you enjoyed this review. If you have your own thoughts as far as how much you enjoyed Captain Marvel or Marvel, I'm going to get in trouble one way or another. I, I think I should just call it both every time I say it. Send me an email. You can write to me. You can find my contact information at my website. Quipster.net is where to go. Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. And until next time, thanks, everyone. And I hope you enjoy your time anytime you get to go to the movies.